You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we're having another risk-off kind of day. The Fed's Waller saying his base case is still only 75 basis points for this month's rate hike. That helped calm things down a bit earlier, but now we're sliding back towards the session lows. Those underwhelming results from the banks this morning certainly aren't helping. We'll look at the tough spot the Fed and the markets are in. Plus, Dan Jurgen joins us with his take on whether inflation has peaked as he warns about the future of copper and a deepening global energy crisis. What are commodities telling us? And Netflix picks Microsoft to help it roll out ads. How the deal went down and what it could mean for both companies, we will have all the details. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with these worsening numbers, Dom. So the numbers are, yes, worsening, but because we haven't seen the kind of bounce we saw yesterday after the CPI numbers were released. So let's kind of put things in perspective. It's a 450-point drop for the Dow Industrials right now, down about 1.5%. It's similar for the S&P 500. We'll use the broader S&P, which is at 3747 right now, to give you an idea of the trading range so far. At the highs of the session, we were still down roughly 31 points. At the lows of the session, down around 80. So you can kind of see there down 55 is right in between that trading range so far today. But again, in the just the last maybe half hour or so, a little bit of a leg lower there. The Nasdaq composite down 137 points, 11,109 the last trade there. That's off about one and one quarter percent. If you take a look at the Worst performing sector in the S&P, maybe no surprise here, by a pretty wide margin, it's energy today. That's because WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices at $94.60 are down nearly 2%. That's off-session lows, by the way. I would point out that at one point earlier in the session, we had traded for that August contract below its 200-day average price on a rolling basis. Some traders look at that for an area of possible support, so we'll see if that holds. The energy sector spider is off about 4% right now as a result. APA Corp, EOG Resources, ExxonMobil, among some of your worst performers in the S&P so far today. Two big bank earnings reports to talk about because it really does kick off the large cap earnings season in earnest. J.P. Morgan Chase, Chase shares, a, a component of the Dow, by the way, off about 4.5%, a pretty decent drag on the Dow so far right now. After it comes out, America's most valuable bank, by the way, with results on the profit and revenue side that were below estimates, thanks in part, due in large part, to some loan loss provisions being taken. They're reserving more money for possibly bad loans down the line. Also some weaker results in their investment banking division. And by the way, CEO Jamie Dimon points out in some commentary that he thinks that inflation and things like worsening consumer sentiment could be a headwind for the global economy. So that's kind of taken some shine out of the market right now. And then Morgan Stanley's off one and a quarter percent as well. It also missed on the top and the bottom line. And investment banking operations there, weaker than expected, although trading for equities and bonds doing a little bit better. Still, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, that financials trade is not kicking off very solidly for this earnings season. We'll see how the rest of the banks do. Cal, back over to you. Oh, it's a great overview, Dom. Thanks very much. Meantime, some key Fed speak from the Fed's Christopher Waller this morning, seeming to lean against a full point rate hike despite another hot inflation report this morning. Let's get to Steve Leisman with all the very latest. Steve? Yeah, and Kelly, it's nuanced. Fed Governor Chris Waller throwing some doubt on the idea of that full percentage point hike at the upcoming Fed meeting, saying this morning that the market might have jumped the gun at least somewhat. The markets may have gotten ahead of themselves a little bit yesterday. That they just assumed it was going to go to 100 after that report. And we don't want to make snap policy decisions based on some knee-jerk reaction to what happened in the CPI report. 
All right. At the same time, Waller, who has been, as you know, one of the more hawkish Fed officials, didn't rule out a 100 basis point hike. He said he has to look at the data over the next couple of weeks to make the call. If the inflation data is worse, he said outright he could support that bigger hike. Either way, his comments, I don't know, they shouldn't have provided much solace to the markets. Waller was firm in supporting 75 at the upcoming meeting and said he thinks the Fed rate, the Fed needs to move rates beyond the neutral zone of two and a half to a restrictive level. Still, Fed funds futures did ease a bit, as Kelly said. Now the peak is in February instead of January at 360 instead of 370. The Fed is priced to back off to just around 3.1% by the end of next year. The volatility reflects uncertainty, deep uncertainty over the economy and Fed policy. And they're moving right now with almost every Fed utterance, Kelly, as you know. Yeah, and it feels very dynamic because they're talking about some of the market's inflation expectations and, you know, that those figures change a lot in real time. You know, the consumer piece of it a little more sticky, depends on what happens with gasoline prices, depends on the president's Saudi trip. Like, so much depends on what we're learning day by day here. I think that's right. But there's another thing out there, Kelly. I don't know if you read Krishna Guha's pieces, but he's been very critical of the Federal Reserve and the lack of a framework here. The market only moves in these kind of bands and ranges because it believes it's within the possibility or, or the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. If Powell were to step forward and put some additional guidance on that, uh, the market may not be quite as, quite as volatile. The question is, does Powell have that framework, given all of the uncertainties that you just laid out? It may be very difficult for him to do it, but the market is moving within a range that it feels is plausible, given what the Fed has told us. That's interesting. And maybe, I guess, sort of a final comment would be, we know policy rates, even as much as they've raised them, are below neutral. You know, even Waller, I think, said two and a quarter. So maybe the Fed could explain to us, what's, why not just get it to two and a quarter you know, from where we are from here, like what are what are the decision points that go into, you know, why we shouldn't already be at that level? It's it's funny, uh, uh, Kelly, because to answer that question, you've got to dig up the speech last week by Esther George or maybe it was this week. It's been such a long week. Right. Esther George laid out why not get there so quickly. Hmm. Esther George is very worried about the ability of markets and the economy to adjust to these big rate hikes. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but uh, uh, some corporate bonds have blown out. There's been a little bit of disruption there. And so Esther George, what she wants to do is make sure the Fed gets uh, reduces its balance sheet. She does not want to see another taper tantrum or another kind of situation we had in 2019. So she's the one who is even, uh, uh, as you remember, one of the most hawkish members of the Federal Reserve. Absolutely. Wants the Fed to move in a more predictable manner so as not to create the kind of volatility that might disrupt the Fed's plans to reduce the balance sheet. And she she was the dissent last month, right, I, I think? Absolutely. And she's sticking to her dissenting guns, if you might. <laughs> uh, and she, her speech really explained in greater detail why she did that. And honestly, uh, Esther George, you know, plain spoken Midwesterner makes a whole lot of sense to me. You know, I, I don't remember ever, Kelly, and you know I've been doing this for a long time. You have, too, but just doesn't show quite as much. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I don't remember any of this volatility going in two weeks before a Fed meeting. Could be 75, could be 100. And then you go into the meeting, you think it's going to be 50. The Fed surprises you with 75. This is why people like Krishna Guha, a former Fed official, one of the most sober Fed watchers I know, is writing with some consternation about the lack of a yeah. framework from the Federal Reserve for dealing with this inflation. Steve, for what it's worth, you don't age either. I, I, <laughs> if I had <laughs> it before, you. you'd look the same the entire time. <laughs> Steve, thank you very much. <laughs> 
very, very <laughs> much, our Steve Leisman. Let's turn back to stocks, which were more off the lows of the day, but the Dow's still down about 450 right now. Inflation absolutely remains the key driver, and peak inflation debates are still raging. Bob Bassani is at the New York Stock Exchange with more. Bob? Uh, Kelly, this peak inflation narrative is not dead, but it's very much on the defensive. As earnings season starts, investors are starting to hear a barrage of cautious comments from corporate America about higher costs, higher rates, and a slowing consumer. Yet a small but very persistent group insists that peak inflation is indeed here. They cite, for example, oil 27% off the highs, copper 35% off, declining freight costs, signs home prices are peaking, not necessarily in the data yet. Here's the bear case, which is still the dominant narrative. Labor and material costs are going to remain high for many months. Companies will be forced to keep raising prices even in the face of weaker demand. Inflation is indeed very high and will persist at these levels for many months, forcing the Fed to be even more aggressive. Companies will be forced to raise prices. As a result, earnings expectations will drop 10 to 20 percent. And the multiples, the P.E. ratios, will further contract from about 16 and a half where it is now to about 14 to 15. All of these forces here will bring the market down at least another 10 percent. That's what the bears say. That's how you get to 32 or 3300 on the S&P. The bulls don't want to price in this dire scenario. They think the signs are already there for a slowing but not a crashing economy. They readily admit growth will be subdued. The U.S. may experience a mild recession. In fact, a third of the traders I talk to think we're already in one. They concede the Fed will raise another 175 to 200 basis points. But they believe fervently that a fourth quarter rally is coming. They are now nibbling or trying to nibble at growth sectors like tech, even Kathy Wood stocks. They think commodities are a losing investment and they think defensive sectors like consumer staples are simply too expensive. I think what we're seeing right now, Kelly, is uh, all of this cautious commentary like Jamie Dimon today uh, is now starting to weigh on stocks. And we are seeing a little bit of a downgrade of the earnings situation. So it is happening. But the bulls say the bottom will be August or September by for the fourth quarter. Back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, our Bob Bassani. My next guest does think the worst inflation is behind us, but warns that investors still have to be cautious until the Fed slows its rate hikes. For more, let's welcome in Mark Avalone. He's president at Potomac Wealth Advisors. That's kind of what Bob was just describing. Mark, what would you like to see the Fed uh, do or say that would make you feel more bullish right now? Good afternoon. Exactly what Bob was just finishing up with on, on the bull case. Uh, it's it's a delayed bull market in my mind. I don't want to be out there today. I'm not diving in. And I think investors need to be cautious until we have the July inflation and then the August inflation and that September Fed meeting. But I do think the bullish, the optimistic investors will be rewarded later in the year. And what's interesting is what I've noticed is growth stocks have been outperforming those defensive names and those value names the past month. And the difference is significant. And I expect that to happen in a slowing growth economy. I think people can start to look at growth names, tech names for long term vision. Cash flowing tech is a solid consideration. So and we were having this debate yesterday uh, with Charlie Babrinskoy, who's sticking with the value names and says they will continue to outperform. Why don't you think that'll be the case? Well, they haven't outperformed in the past month, and that tells me that when people believe it's going to be risk on or we have a more benign Fed and we have inflation tapering, that those are going to be the companies to invest in. I think we might look at some earnings pressure from a stronger dollar relative to the euro, especially 
as a headwind for technology and growth names. But I think as we look out in a slow growth world, that's where money goes. When you want top line growth, when the world is slowing, that's where you invest, not in defensives. Okay. Uh, that said, talk to me about the financials, which are one of the three general buckets you like here. But I know it's the insurers in particular you favor. What about the rest of the space, especially after what we heard this morning? Well, we asset allocate, so we're not totally on one side of the growth boat. And in the value space, we do have financial exposure. The reason I like insurance companies, despite today they're doing quite poorly, I think, on the J.P. Morgan news, is that they're going to benefit in this higher interest rate world. They're still getting hit. Their bond portfolio is getting hit. The benefit to higher rates for their huge balance sheets hasn't come through. So there has been a lag, in, but their multiples in the mid-single digits are incredibly attractive. I think the problem with banks is what we're seeing today, and we're not even hearing that asset value declines are going to hurt earnings in investment to the in addition to the investment bank earnings declining. But the biggest factor impacting banks is always loan losses. It's been so long since we've had a recession, since we've had loan losses, investors forgot. The pain of loan loss reserves, the pain of realizing losses is far greater than the gain from higher interest rates and gross revenue. And that's what's hurting J.P. Morgan today. And that's what concerns me the most about direct investments in banks. Oh, interesting. So you're kind of just hoping if you spread the money around the sector, you, you know, it mitigates that impact to some extent. Tech, healthcare, quick comment on those. I mean, you've alluded to tech already with some of the growth uh, observations. And healthcare, as we know, has been a relative outperformer. Right. And we expect the macro trends for healthcare. We can't forget them. It is an aging population. There was a suppressed uh, demand during COVID for two years. So we do expect, and it's been it's been surprisingly not bursting yet, but those those delayed procedures uh, should help uh, healthcare equipment manufacturers. We think the demand on healthcare is still going to grow as we age as a society and valuations still look reasonable. All right. The delayed bull, Mark Avalone. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Okay. Joining me with Potomac. Quick programming note, Wall Street's newest, biggest bear will join Fast Money tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern. B of A's Savita Subramanian slashing her S&P price target by 20 percent to 3,600. That's 4 percent lower from here. It all begins around 5 p.m. Eastern. Coming up here, crude oil threatening to break below $90 a barrel and at one point trading lower than it was before Russia's war in Ukraine. Will President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia tomorrow have any impact on oil prices? And what about the looming threat of shortages elsewhere, like in copper? Dan Jurgen joins us next. Plus, we'll check in with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo about inflation, supply chain challenges, and the state of that long-delayed CHIPS Act, with the SMH ETF down nearly 40% from its highs. And as we head to break, here's a look at the stock market. Dow's down 446. It's the worst performer of the major three, although the small caps are down 2.25%. And, and the 10-year, back at 295. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil today dropping below $95 a barrel on concerns that aggressive Fed tightening will lead to an economic slowdown. My next guest has been looking across the commodities complex, especially at copper, as the world transitions or tries or maybe gives up on clean energy. He says everything's pointing to a downturn. Joining me now is S&P Global Vice Chair Dan Jurgen. Dan, it's great to have you here. So many major world events happening. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, if I can, I want to just start with this news that apparently the uh, Mario Draghi, our audience knows him very well. He led the European Central Bank through its debt crisis a decade ago. He's apparently now just said he will resign as head of the Italian government. What is at stake here in Europe from their political <sighs> void as they confront a, an energy crisis that, as you say, looks like it's set to deepen? Yeah, it's absolutely, because uh, I think from the European perspective, they're focused less on oil, but on natural gas and getting through this winter and maintaining unity and cooperation. And basically, uh, Vladimir Putin has opened a second front in the in the war, not only in the battlefield in Ukraine, but in the energy markets in Europe, where he's using natural gas to try and uh, create, an, well, he create an economic crisis, hardship. And he said, bring populace to power. And uh, and ultimately lead, as in his strange language he used, change the elites in Europe. Hmm. So I think so. The Europeans are saying, "Are it's a race? Can we fill our gas reserves uh, in time for the winter?" And Putin is trying to make it very hard for them. The Italian uh, stock market, the futures are down about five percent right now. We've seen widening spreads between yields on the periphery versus Germany, and Germany itself is in a bit of a pickle here. What do you think is going to happen on July twenty second? Will Russia turn on the, the gas pipes, the flows back into the continent? Well, I think Russia's uh, going to manipulate the gas supplies for their political purposes. Uh, they'll find, you know, they, they'll save maintenance. They'll find other reasons uh, to do it. But I think it, Putin laid out a strategy last month at the St. Petersburg International Economic uh, Forum. And uh, he's following through on it. So they may start it up and then find some other reason. But I think we're going to see more disruptions because for him, uh, his strategy is break the coalition, and that's to break the willpower in Europe, and that's by creating economic hardship there that leads to rebellion of, against government policies. So he knows what he's doing, and he understands the energy markets very well. You know, with apologies for such a simple question, how are we in the U.S. going to be affected by all this? Well, I think, obviously, on gas, if the gas, you know, Europe's economic problems uh, if they deepen, we'll certainly feel them. We'll feel it if the coalition breaks. Uh, the German economics minister has gone so far to say in an extreme case to talk about a, a, a Lehman 2008-type uh, contagion if the German economy really buckles. But I think we'll feel it in the energy markets. Uh, obviously, right now we're seeing you know, a pivot in the energy markets from worried about not enough oil to where the, it's not Saudi Arabia that really has the high cards now and what happens to the oil price. It's over on Constitution Avenue over at the Federal Reserve here in Washington. Hmm. That's probably going to do more to determine the oil price than anybody else. Well, that's somewhat reassuring uh, because it, you know, we, hopefully the Fed is a little bit uh, less of a nemesis in some cases. I'm trying to figure out the right words to use here. So we are somewhat insulated, I, I hear you say, but it also depends on sort of the fate of our economy. Well, our fate of the economy, inflation is a number one issue. But the oil market, notwithstanding uh, the fact that prices are down, remains uh, very tight and uh, the next few months can still be very difficult. It's, it's oil and natural gas together. Obviously, you know, whether it comes now or a month from now, we'll, as a result of the president's visit to the Middle East, we'll see more oil coming from, uh, from Saudi Arabia. Also, it helps that they're 
OPEC plus deal with Russia is coming to an end anyway, so that they can increase production. But, I, you know, I don't think they want to make it, they don't want to do it, they're pivoting on a dime. But psychologically, that can also affect the market. Do you think the market will be tight? Um, do you think commodities in general will be tight? I know you're warning about copper today and saying, listen, this is a, the key input for the entire energy transition. But it, we're at basically two-year lows in prices right now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, you know, if you go back to where they were in March and where they are today, it's you've gone from one world to the other. Well, copper is known as Dr. Copper because of all the commodities, it has a reputation for this uncanny ability to predict economic downturns. And that's certainly uh, what it's doing right now. But when we, in our copper study, what we just said we came out with today, the future of copper supply, it's if you look at the need for copper, for electric cars, for solar, for transmission, uh, you're going to see a need for copper demand literally uh, will double between now and 2035. And, you know, we've heard a lot of governments, the U.S. government and others expressing great alarm about the availability of minerals. Uh, and now they've just formed the U.S., the EU, a mineral security partnership, which tells you mm. they're concerned. What we try to do is quantify it and say, yes, you're going to need a lot more copper than uh, you think if you're going to achieve these climate goals. So final question, then, if copper becomes sort of the new key commodity, as important as oil, maybe more so in some cases, how will that change the balance of power? Well, it will change it, in, I think, in two ways. One, different countries will become more important. 38% of world copper comes from two countries, Chile and Peru. That's more concentrated than the oil market. The other element, Kelly, is that uh, China has a very strong role in the entire value change, including uh, in terms of smelting and refining. And so I think you'll see these new supply chain issues uh, coming together with the geopolitical issues. We've already seen that on lithium batteries. So there'll be a new geopolitics of energy uh, as part of the energy transition. Yeah, in which China remains a key uh, player and Latin America perhaps rises as well. Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Thank we you. appreciate it. Thank you. Dan Jurgen with S&P Global. Still ahead, Netflix is next chapter, naming Microsoft as its partner to build an ad-supported subscription plan. Why Microsoft? And why did Netflix shares jump yesterday on the announcement? We'll speak with the top ad exec. And if you're looking to take advantage of this market volatility, our trader is digging up three stocks she's calling diamonds in the rough. Danielle Shea is minutes away. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Walmart and Apple in the green in a very tough day. We're down 380 points. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Travelers, the biggest drags. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Dow was down 628 points at the session lows. We're currently down 355, about a 1% drop for the Dow and the S&P, and eight-tenths, let's call it, for the NASDAQ. Now, Costco is among the leaders in the S&P today, up 3% on an upgraded Deutsche Bank to buy, saying the club business model should outperform in an uncertain economy. The analysts cite steady traffic gains and high membership renewal rates. We just renewed ours, uh, boosting their target price to 579 a share, about a 20% pop from here. More on that call over at CBC. 
CNBC.com slash pro. Conagra is the worst name in the S&P. It just had earnings, posted a mixed quarter, higher costs eating into their profit margins. Those margins fell by about three points year over year. And the company says more price hikes are on the way as they forecast inflation in the low teens during their new fiscal year. Ouch. Conagra down 8%. Here are some of the names that are hitting 52-week lows today, and they include Under Armour, Caesars, and Royal Caribbean, down about 70% from their highs. Match Group today hitting an all-time low. And what about Disney? It's down 51% from its recent highs at its lowest level since March 2020, the month the pandemic hit. It's the worst Dow stock so far this year and over the past three, six, and 12 months. Yikes. Let's get to Kate Rogers now for a CNBC News update. Kate? Hi, Kelly. A 38-year-old Texas man was driving the pickup truck that crossed into an oncoming lane, crashing into a van carrying a New Mexico college golf team, not his 13-year-old son, as investigators had initially thought. And the NTSB says that man had methamphetamine in his system. The man, his son, and seven people on that van were all killed in the crash. In Virginia, authorities now say they have located all of the 44 people who had been unaccounted for after severe flooding. They say many of them were reported missing because power failures made it hard for family members to check on them. Mario Draghi is resigning as Italy's prime minister after one of the parties in his ruling coalition withdrew its support in a dispute over economic policy. And former President Trump tells New York Magazine that in his own mind, he has already decided he will run again in 2024. Now he says his big decision is whether to launch his bid before or after the midterm elections. Tonight on the news, inside a new CNBC poll that shows President Biden's economic approval rating has fallen to a new low. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Still ahead, Taiwan Semi reporting record profit in its second quarter, but the stock up about 2%. It's not all sunshine and roses for the world's largest chip maker. The CEO warned of greater challenges in the supply chain and said some spending will be pushed out into next year. Will Congress step in next? Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo joins us after the break with that and the latest on the fate of that CHIPS Act. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Check out the chip stocks today. The SMH ETF, barely in the green right now. AMD, Intel, and NVIDIA, a mixed bag. Uh, the stock's reacting to news that potentially makes the CHIPS Act more likely to pass in Congress. Elon Moy is standing by with the Commerce Secretary for the very latest on that effort. Elon? Well, Kelly, we are just learning from a source familiar that Senator Schumer has started telling his caucus to prepare for a floor vote as early as Tuesday to start moving a very limited competition bill that includes that $52 billion in funding for CHIPS as well as a separate investment tax credit. And here to talk about all of it with us today is Secretary Gina Raimondo. Thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're busy, knee deep in negotiations on Capitol Hill, so I was hoping you could lay out the state of play for us. Is this sort of CHIPS-only bill the path forward? Is this going to be the final solution? It seems like we're moving in that direction. Uh, you have said that Schumer has said that earlier today. You saw Republican leadership, Republican leaders, Senator Cornyn, Senator Blunt, coming out saying they would be supportive of a much sl slimmed down version of the bill. Uh, it seems like Republicans and Democrats are coming to grips with the urgency mm -hmm. of this situation. If, they don't pa if this doesn't happen next week, 
China wins, the United States loses. It really is that simple. And so I'm starting to feel the urgency and coalescing around a really slimmed down version with a focus and priority on the CHIPS funding. What changed though, because this is something that you guys have been working on for over a year, why do you need to act now in order to make this happen when we're already hearing companies say they're making investments in Texas, in Ohio, in Arizona? Yeah. Well, a couple things have changed. First of all, uh, Ukraine, I think, has highlighted the fact that you know, there's 200 plus chips in every Javelin launching system. And our national defense contractors are working furiously with Ukrainian replenishment. And I think there's a real acknowledgement that this is a core national security issue. The United States of America makes no leading edge semiconductors on our shores. We buy them all from Taiwan. All of the new legacy chip capacity that's come online in recent years is from China. And so I think that the focus on the national security element of this bill, which has been brought into focus, obviously due to the war in Europe, has had senators and congresspeople really come to grips with the reality. But the other thing, which is why it has to happen next week, is you know, earlier this week, Global Foundries was in France announcing an expansion there, not in the United States, because France provided an incentive. You see Global Wafers saying it'll either be Texas or South Korea, depending on whether CHIPS passes this summer. So the point of it is, the U.S. is going to lose out, quite literally, this summer uh, to Europe or Asia if Congress doesn't move. But there are lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, from Bernie Sanders to Rick Scott, who say, you know, this $52 billion is basically just a corporate handout. What do you say to them? I would say this is a national security imperative, period, full stop. It is an untenable, dangerous situation that the United States is in, where we are utterly dependent on Taiwan, overly dependent on China, for supply of the most critical product for our military and for our economy you know, truthfully, for our entire economy, for innovation. So uh, we just have to do it. And, and by the way, other countries are passing us by. Right. And so it's just time to act. You say that this investment is needed now, but these are going to be long-term investments. They're not going to pay off for years to come. But yet at the same time, we're facing raging inflation here at home. You have reports that Intel is going to be raising prices of some of its chips by as much as 20 percent. Mm. How does that help solve that problem now? Yes, you know, candidly, uh, it does take years. It'll take, it'll take a couple of years for these new facilities to be up and running, and so it doesn't provide much relief today. You saw today Toyota is um, shutting down an operation in Texas because of lack of chips. Car companies have furloughed so many workers. So we have to get through the immediate crisis. However, we also have to start now because shame on, if Congress leaves for August and this isn't passed and these companies go build in Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, Europe, we lose out and we lose out forever. They only, they only make you know, one megafab $20 billion investment once. And so we're playing for the long game here. We're playing for America's long-term national security, but we have to move now if we're going to you know, have the window to, to make this reality. 
Secretary Raimondo, thank you so much for taking the time out. We'll see what happens over the next few weeks. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, that's the urgency uh, we can hear there. Uh, Elon and Secretary Raimondo, thank you very much. Netflix shares down 70% this year as investors grapple with whether adding commercials can make up for losing customers. Will its new deal with Microsoft add up to more gains for the stock? It's down 2% today. Plus, an interesting split. Take a look at these two names. The best stock in the S&P is a casino stock, LVS, Las Vegas Sands. It's up 2.25%. One of the worst stocks in the S&P, also a casino stock, Caesars. Down more than 6% after getting a price target cut at Wells Fargo. LVS bouncing back after Macau shut down fears. These stocks usually trade in tandem, but not today. We're back after this. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. After years of resistance, Netflix is taking the plunge. It's adding commercials. They're teaming up with Microsoft to help create an ad-supported tier on the platform. That gives customers the option for a low-cost plan. Now, it comes as Netflix continues to struggle with subscriber growth. They're expected to announce a loss of 2 million users in their second quarter earnings report next week. The shares are down 71% for the year. So will ads help turn the business around? Let's bring in Mark Douglas. He is CEO of Mountain. Mark, it's great to have you here. Can I just start with why Microsoft? Well, I think one, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, is on the board of directors of Netflix. So oh. I think that's like, in retrospect, kind of obvious. So that is obviously relationships matter, and that's a deep relationship. I think also Microsoft brings deep pockets. They have no com competitive business with Netflix. So with the synergy on the people side and you know the lack of conflicts, which everyone else in the industry somewhat has with Netflix, it, you know that that's the starting point for a deal. But forgive me for asking, I don't think of Microsoft as a big ad platform. What, what am I missing? What have they been up to? Well, one thing to remember is they own LinkedIn, and LinkedIn actually has a pretty sizable ad business. So I wouldn't say they have no ad business. They definitely have don't have a television ad business. So, but they they so that's a real starting point for both companies, and they're in it together now. I mean, they're this is a this is an advertising road trip, I guess you can call it, and they're <laughs> they're going out on the journey together. What is the Mark Douglas take on all of this? I mean, it, I can totally see why people are saying, listen, Netflix, you have to have basically a $5 a month offering because you're just getting too expensive and there's too many other options out there. But commercials, I, I don't know. What, what do you think about this move in general? Well, there's a lot of risk in this in the sense of that Netflix has really no clue how many of their users are going to elect for an ad-supported plan. And at a cheaper price point, I think they have to be prepared to really, really um, you know, invest in this. And again, having a partner like Microsoft makes a lot of sense in terms of being able to weather that. But I think also, I mean, Netflix accounts for a pretty significant percentage of television viewing. And so that all that inventory is entering the market and and it's great for Netflix. I think over time, advertising can account for a pretty sizable percentage of their business. And some people think it could wind up being as big as their current business, depending on how aggressively they go after it. Because it's Netflix <laughs> and with the Microsoft angle, do you expect them to bring some kind of fresh approach to how they do advertising or should they, or should this look and feel pretty conventional? 
Well, I think one thing that's interesting about Netflix, they have no legacy ad business. So, you know, like, for example, their ads don't have to be 30 seconds. I mean, they can bring, usually when you bring new ad platforms in the market, you also bring new ad formats. So this may not be your traditional TV ad or, it, you know, like if you think of social platforms, they have different sizes, they have different lengths. Um, so I think there's room for a lot of creativity here. And, and I think um, advertisers um, will probably be very intrigued by that if that's what they do and, and potentially respond very well to it. Would YouTube be an example of that? They've had to pioneer a lot of different ad formats. They have, but in the case of YouTube, they, it's short form video. You don't want to watch a 30 second ad for a 60 second video. Netflix is episodic programming. You are you are really committing to watching the show, and so that kind of commitment is what you know keeps user the consumer, the entertainment consumer, kind of glued to the screen. So I think the formats can be different. I doubt there'll be something like pre-roll. Um, I think it will be like in the show, and but it again doesn't have to be your traditional 30-second TV ad. And does it hold, does the whole thing make you feel more bullish or more bearish on Netflix? Um, I right now, I think bullish in the sense that the, the this can generate a lot of revenue for Netflix and obviously Microsoft. But I think in the near term, there's a bit of risk. So as an investor, if you're thinking long term, great. It, I, I think it's great opportunity. If you're thinking very near term, you're probably a little skittish because there's 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 definitely some unknowns. All right. We'll leave it there. Mark, appreciate your insight. Thanks so much today. Thank you. Mark Douglas with Mountain. Coming up, we'll get the trader's take on Netflix, and she'll give us some names to buy in what could be a rough earnings season. The Exchange has more after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're kicking off earnings season on kind of a weak note with underwhelming reports from the banks this morning and ConAgra down as well. But my next guest has three diamonds in the rough that could outperform on their reports, including one name in particular that could see a big short squeeze. Let's bring in Danielle Shea. She's director of options at Simpler Trading. Great to see you, Danielle. And we're going to pick up where we just left off, which is with Netflix. I've just heard about them wading into the ad business. This one you think could be a candidate for a big short squeeze? Yes, Kelly, I do. And the reason for that is just because the news has been so weak surrounding Netflix. They had two absolutely awful reports in a row. I want to make it clear that I am bearish on Netflix, and I don't think that their move with Microsoft is going to help. I think that the last quarter in particular, they haven't had a lot of new content. I don't think Stranger Things is really going to help their situation. But I think the problem is, is that it looks so bad if their report is anything short of terrible and we see a break up above $200 a share. I think that's where we could see a potential short squeeze, especially because of the very high put call ratio right now. All right. It's at 174, let's call it. So some room to go before it would hit that level, but a notable one to watch. Let's move along to some of your other diamonds in the rough. United Health reports earnings tomorrow morning flat on the year in a down market. Pretty good. It's beaten estimates eight of the last eight quarters. What do you say? I like United Healthcare here. You know, I think that the healthcare industry overall has done relatively well considering the ongoing circumstances. I think that United Healthcare has been a relative strength winner in this space. 
the way that they performed on earnings, especially last quarter, was very positive. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm looking for companies that have been able to thrive in this current market environment. While I'm not looking at it and saying, you know, hey, I think this earnings report is going to send it straight to the moon. Um, I am looking for companies that are holding up well that I can continue adding to my long term stock portfolio, because once things improve in the economy, these are the ones that are really going to take off. Ed, Northrop Grumman is another one that has done well. It's up 19 percent this year, increasing its dividend. But I don't think of that as usually the kind of name you want to jump into if things start to lift. You know what I mean? Is that just a, a, a doing well in a bad market kind of tale? It is doing well in a bad market kind of tale, but it also has a lot to do with the macro conditions. You know, right now we have the continuing Ukraine-Russia conflict going on. We've also got those very strange commercials <laughs> in New York City about, uh, you know, preparing for a nuclear attack. When you look at this overall sector of the market, it's been holding up well. The fact that they just increased their dividend, they would not be doing that if things were not stable at the company. And for this reason, I wouldn't buy it by the stock right here because it's already been so strong. But I do like it for a trade. And I think that you could trade it to a new all time high. Yeah, no, this is the kind of macro we don't like to hear about. But like you said, we, we have heard so much about. All right, let's turn then to tractor supply. This one's down on the year about 17 percent, but has pretty consistently beat on earnings. And you think it's been unfairly punished? I do think it's been unfairly punished. And I mean, it's it fits within the consumer discretionary sector, but I would actually argue it's a little bit more of a staple stock. I mean, especially with the ongoing circumstances, the high PPI, the high CPI, I think that consumers will more than likely head to stores like Tractor Supply instead of the more expensive, you know, pet stores, gardening, that kind of thing. You know, middle America, I mean, they can't just stop running their ranch because of everything that's going on. I like the way that they've continued to do well on earnings. I like the way that they've continued to increase their dividend. And I think this is another great stock to bet on in the long run because I think it's a very stable company. Yeah, I was going to say, if anything, you're betting more on the ranch these days the way it feels. Daniel, quick final question. Kind of your Netflix comments made me think about it, but are you turning at all more bullish on the market setup this earnings season? Obviously, the last six months have been a train wreck and you've been very clear about that. What now? No, Kelly, I'm not turning more bullish on the market here. I actually think that this earnings season is going to shine a, a really big light on all of the different underlying issues that we have in the economy right now. I do think that, yes, I mean, the market has stopped just completely careening lower, which is a positive sign. Um, but I think that as Netflix earnings comes out next week and we start getting into big tech earnings, I just think that with each report, we're going to see more bad news. And I think it's going to continue to weigh heavier on the market. All right. Well, then all the more reason to find those diamonds in the rough. Danielle, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Danielle Shea. Markets are lower right now. Not quite as bad as they looked at the open, but not great either. The S&P was down 80 at the lows. We're down 38 right now. The Dow's down 360. Coming up, Manhattan. Who said it was dead? Wait until you hear how much New York City apartment is now renting for. That eye-popping number is next. Welcome back, everybody. Stocks lower across the board today. Investors fearing the Fed will have to get more aggressive to fight inflation. People are saying, well, the prices have started to come down in energy and materials. But one area where prices are as high as ever, rents. 
Robert Frank has the numbers on just how expensive Manhattan apartments have now become, Robert. Well, Kelly, rents are a big part of the CPI, and Manhattan is by far the biggest rental market in the country. And right now, this market showing no signs of slowing. The average price in Manhattan topped $5,000 in June. That's the first time in history that has ever happened. Prices were up 29% over last year. The average for a two-bedroom, even higher at $5,700 a month. Brokers say more people are deciding to rent rather than buy. That adds to the rental pool. Many families that left Manhattan during the pandemic, well, they are returning. And then younger renters, so that's millennials and Gen Zers, they want to be in the city for the culture and the nightlife, even if they don't have to be in the office every day. The occupancy rate right now in Manhattan is still under 40%. So this has created two almost opposite markets. You've got the rents and the sales market. Bidding wars are common for rentals, but sales listing, they're having trouble attracting any bids at all right now. There are long lines for rental open houses, but sales open houses virtually empty. July and August are historically the strongest rental months in Manhattan. And brokers say that based on what they're seeing right now, Kelly, July is going to be even stronger than June. So at what point do they start converting, you know, ownership buildings into rentals or even offices into them? They're doing both of those things now, but just not fast enough. You know, investors are buying these multifamily and large apartment buildings like crazy, but they're not selling direct residential listings. So, you know, the office buildings that are empty, they're converting those. They're converting sales building into rentals, but the supply, the inventory is still under 2% in Manhattan. That is still near an all-time record. Wow, it's fascinating with so many macro implications, but also who would have thought it a couple of years ago in the depths of the pandemic? Robert, thank you very much, our Robert Frank. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.